Interest rates are sky high in 2023, and buying a rental property means you could get stuck with an 8, 9, or 10% mortgage rate. But what about a 2.99% rate with rent to retirement? Rent to retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate with an average cash flow of over $900 per month. Plus, They've got options where you can put as little as 5% down with no PMI. As the nation's leading turnkey investment company, Rent to Retirement helps investors build headache-free, high-cash-flow rental portfolios. And since their properties are fully turnkey, newly built or renovated, leased and managed, anyone can invest, even those who aren't into landlording. So what are you waiting for? This 2.99% rate deal won't last long. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com pockets. Fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. What's up, everyone? Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by Mr. James Daynard, Kathy Fecky, and Henry Washington. How is everyone? Fantastic. Good to see you guys again. I'm good. I'm back in warm California, so I'm, I'm happy. Are you still snowed in, Henry? Uh, there's still snow on the ground, but luckily the roads are nav- navigatable. Is that a word? Close nav- enough. Nav- nav- <laughs> navigable. Navigable. There we go. <laughs> well, we had an earthquake. What? You know, kind of exciting. I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. California? I didn't even see that. Right off of Malibu, about a few miles in. But I wasn't there, so hopefully the house is still there. We'll see. Sweet. But if, if the earthquake didn't take it, it might be the Santa Ana winds we had all week. So, <laughs> Oh, boy. Glamorous California. I mean, it's, it does. I know you're saying it's not, but it does seem pretty glamorous. I'm pretty into it. In the summer. <laughs> the weather, at least, it seems really nice. I'm, I've been staring at... It's like four, five o'clock. It's pitch black out here. So that sounds pretty nice. <laughs> All right. Well, today we're going to get into a topic that uh, we we haven't touched on this before, but a lot of the show, we want to help people understand current market conditions. And honestly, a lot of that is how you underwrite your deals and how you make estimates um, into some of the costs, some of the, you know, sometimes we talk about rent and income, but today we're going to really focus on the cost side of your deals. And we're going to talk about hidden costs. So what are some of the traps that investors miss 
when they're underwriting their deals or don't know how to calculate. And I don't know about you guys, but this is probably one of the more common questions I get. It's like, I get the math, how to like, you know, underwrite a, a rental property, but like, how do I figure out the assumptions for a rehab? Or how do I figure out the assumption for holding costs for a flip? You know, those types of questions, I think really trip up um, investors and they change a lot based on market conditions. So that is what we're going to talk about today. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 Exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com. Or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. All right, so let's get into it today. We're actually going to break this down into different strategies. So as usual, James is going to represent the fix and flipping crew for us. Henry's going to take the buy and hold position. And Kathy is going to look at syndications. James, let's look. Let's start with you and just talk about fix and flip. Just generally speaking, like at the highest level, what are the big categories of expenses that you think investors really need to know about uh, when they're underwriting their deals and which ones do you think are the hardest to understand and to underwrite correctly? Yeah, there's, um, you know, fix it flip is one of those businesses because it's a high return deal. There's a lot of fees that can be associated with it. It's also a high risk transaction as well. Um, cause you, you know, you are buying, there's so many little things that can come up 
Uh, but the four main costs that I, I usually am watching when I'm buying any kind of fix and flip deal or a short-term investment where we got to close really quick is closing costs and assignment fees, like what's your total acquisition, the lending, because you, a lot of times you got to take down these properties with construction lenders, which have a lot of fees that can be associated with that loan uh, as far as doc prepping, uh, what kind of uh, interest are you being, uh, how they're, they're structuring their interest payments. Um, and then construction, you know, what, what are you missing outside the general scope of work? And then lastly, it's always seller concessions because those things can be big effects at the bottom line in the ROI when you got to contribute to closing costs. So those are like the four big things. And, you know, it's, it, as an investor, you really got to dig into each one to make sure that you're not getting feed to death because those fees can really, really jeopardize your return. All right, great. I, I know nothing about any of this, so let's let's get into that. You said the the first thing here is closing costs and assignment fees. So, what are some of the big costs associated with just acquisition there? Well, the one of the biggest fees hitting costs that I see happen all the time is in wholesaling, and because a lot of times when a wholesaler, you know, when you're buying an assignment deal, you you know you you typically or you're buying any deal, you have your own closing costs, which are typically going to be your title and your escrow fees. Uh, and if you're an investor, a lot of times you can negotiate a better rate because you're doing numerous transactions. So that's the first fee I'm always going after is how do I reduce my transaction fees, escrow, title? I work with one title company. They give me a way better rate. They reduce my cost when I'm doing the same transaction. The other thing I have to watch out for is when you're buying an off-market wholesale deal, you are buying the terms that the wholesaler structured with the seller as a negotiation. And part of that negotiation sometimes, like even when we're wholesaling or working with a seller, a seller just sometimes wants to know what their net number is. Like I'm walking away with $10,000 or $20,000, whatever it is. That usually means that the contract's structured with the buyer paying all the seller's closing costs. And so what there's a huge fee that can creep in at the end. I've been seeing, especially the last two years, it wasn't as big of a deal until these last two years, is... You would go to buy a deal from a wholesaler and they say, hey, it's $200,000. Perfect wholesaler, I'll take that deal. I'm calculated as a buyer that I got my standard escrow and title piece. But then they, when they're saying 200000 or they're saying, hey, I locked this property up for one hundred eighty. I want to make twenty as my assignment fee. You're buying it for two hundred. But then if they structure that you're paying the buyer's closing costs, that can get rolled into the deal. And that can be anywhere between three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 they can get added onto the property. And if that's not specified in that assignment agreement, you could get stuck paying those costs. Because if you're signing an assignment and saying, hey, I'm just assuming this guy's contract, it's up to the investor to verify what's inside that contract. And so you can get stuck with those fees if you're not watching that. So like how I like this always structure my off-market deals is instead of a purchase price, I do total investor acquisition. So that means... When I'm buying it from the wholesaler, I'm going, hey, I'm buying this for 200000 but that covers all the costs in there. And then that way, if there is additional cost that comes out of the assignment, not my pocket. So you're saying that there is a chance, like using your example where it's, you know, the 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 house is at 180 the wholesaler wants to, twenty grand for an assignment fee. You're saying that there are scenarios where you as the investor could buy it for 200 and then you would have additional costs on top of that that could be unexpected. Yeah, because when you're buying wholesale, when you're when you're buying a wholesale deal, you're not actually buying a property. You are on the next transaction. You're buying the rights to the contract on that property, and so however that contract's structured, if it's not clarified on what that's being, if that's being deducted from the fee, yes, you are going to be responsible for any buyer's closing costs because you're now assuming that contract, right? Okay, 
that makes sense. Okay, that's a very good tip. Yeah, I I, I never would have uh, thought about that. And so, is that something that wholesalers, you know, the what you're suggesting, sort of the total acquisition fee, using that as like the negotiated, you know, the number for your negotiation? It sounds like is that something wholesalers are familiar with in your experience, and they're like comfortable re, you know, reconsidering the way they structure their deals or their presentations to you around what your your preferred metric? Yeah, a lot of times I'll, I'll have a little bit of issues when I'm working with like a, maybe a newer wholesaler just because they just also don't, they didn't think about it either. So if they call me and say, hey, this price is 200 grand, the price is really 205 if I'm paying all the closing costs. And so I, I, I just have to educate people a little bit like, oh, next time will you let me know it's 200 and you're, I'm paying all sellers close, so I can calculate it correctly. The clarification question I always ask is, is this, is there any other cost outside of it? And then is this my total acquisition fee? And if I do that, it can kind of narrow the price down. If they say yes, and then the contract stays later, they're responsible to cover the difference at that point. Okay, cool. Thank you. That's super helpful. So the second thing you said where there's some hidden costs that you might want to make sure you're you're calculating is with lending and hard money. There are some well-known fees and costs associated with getting a loan, but what what particularly about flipping and hard money do you think people need to keep an eye out for? Especially nowadays. So the lending hard money space has changed. Like it has been one of the biggest industries that's changed over the last 24 to 36 months. Hard money, when I was buying as a new investor, was just like, I mean, it was, it was really hard money. We would go to a lender and say, hey, we got this property. They want us to put a certain amount down. They verified the loan to value and I could have my cash in 24 to 48 hours. And it was a very simple process at that point. Um, and then, you know, you kind of knew what your fees were, which typically with a lender, when you're using a construction or hard money loan, which most of the times you need to do with a fix and flip, right? You got to add value to the, these properties. They're going to they're gonna be higher rate in points. And, you know, so the first things you always want to look for is what's the points on the loan? And what points are is it's the origination fee with the balance of that property, which is going to be the purchase price and the construction component. The next thing you want to know is what is the interest rate, which is going to be, you know, it typically with hard money right now, it's going to be 10 to 12%. And, you know, based on that rate, you want to make sure that there's, there's a couple of things that you want to watch out on that interest in the rate. The thing that I'm always looking out for is if I'm doing a construction loan, are they charging me interest on the full balance of the loan or only the drawn amount? That can really make a big difference on a long project because some lenders do finance because they say, hey, I'm reserving you the cash. And so, you know, if we're reserving the cash, we're charging you for the interest. Now, some lenders don't do that. And so those are really important things to do because again, it can be thousands of dollars on your interest when you're reading the, your, your loan sheet. In addition to, you want to know if there's any kind of prepayment penalties, right? Because they're, like what I was saying earlier was I, when we had hard money, it was like cash guys giving us money. Now there's banks in this space and banks come with different types of terms. They're used to prepays. They want to keep their money out on the street because if you're a, a short-term investor and you're getting a 12-month hard money loan and you're selling that deal in eight months, and there's a prepay that's going to affect your deal and in, in return down. So a lot, sometimes there can be a one to two point prepay. Other times there can be motivation where like we have a hard money company called interest funding. We actually incentivize our borrowers to pay us off quickly because we like to get in and out of loans. It's safer for us. And so there, you want to be also asking what the benefits are. And then the biggest thing you got to check out for in your lending is just those hidden little doc fees. 
because they just rack up. But can you negotiate out of those? It's like they they always keep it at like a level where it's annoying, but it's not worth actually like arguing about. Like, do you actually go after your lenders for those things? You know, I I will because there's also the the cat and mouse game all these lenders play, and it's like, oh, I only charge one point and I miss rate. But then you look at their doc schedules and their fees, and it's almost the same as a two-point lender that may have a lot more reduced fees. So you do have to look through them all because when you're paying $350 to $500 per fee and there's four to five of them in that deal, that that's a big that can turn into two to three points. Yeah. And, and if you're doing that on 10 deals, that's going to add up dramatically over or, you know over a year. And uh, so just always be watching, you know, there's always the construction doc fee, the underwriting fee. Then there's a construction draw fee that could be like $500 per draw that you have. Then there could be uh, a, a, what I get, I got one recently. I'm like, they, they charged me a hundred bucks to generate a payoff. I was like, you gotta be, I'm paying you off and you're gonna charge me a hundred bucks. <laughs> like, money collection fee. Yeah. Money collection. Yeah. I'm paying. I'm, yeah. They're incentivized. They're, they're trying to make it sure I'm not paying them off. You're paying them to take your money. Exactly. I, that one I felt really good about, but all these fees add up and, and you really got to watch for them. And a lot of investors will, that's their first thing is what's your rate and points. And they get fixated on this, but you want to look at the whole big picture. What is the total cost of all these, um, you know, how they're structuring their interest payments, how they're, what kind of doc and prep fees, and then really compare apples to apples at that point. Sounds like it would be a good idea to be a lender then. <laughs> you know, being a lender is one of the best businesses there are. <laughs> Clearly. Being a hard money lender it is the best business to operate. I will say that because you, you don't have to do all the hard work. The, the, the investors are doing the hard work. You just got to make sure you verify the asset and then you're good. And just charge a bunch of fees. <laughs> Reasonable fees if it's interest funding. <laughs> okay, James. So th- so far we've talked about closing costs and lending, construction. I feel like this is obviously a big one. There's probably so many things to it. But what are you, what's your, your top tip here for helping people avoid any hidden fees or costs with construction on a flip? You know, the biggest one that I always say is, is the bid fixed or is it time and material or just an estimate? Those are going to be the big variances on those hidden fees because I have had clients, and it's happened to me too, where you get submitted a bid and you have to read that fine print. Are these allowances that are being listed on your estimate or is it fixed? And if there's verbiage about there being an allowance or it's an estimate only, that contractor can raise their price at any time, at least in Washington State. So that's the big one with construction to make sure you're narrowing that scope that it can't be increased just because costs go up. What structure do you prefer, James, for to for your contractors? Is it is it fixing the bid? We fix bid everything. It's I want to know price per square foot or fixed bid, and if they can't do that, it makes me a little uncomfortable. Okay, cool. And then last thing you said was seller concessions, very popular topic these days. So uh, you know, what are you doing to to make sure you're accounting for seller concessions right now? You know, as as the market cools down, you want to look at what demographic you're selling to. You know, if it's a first-time home buyer right now, we, we might pack in an additional three per, two to three percent in closing costs because that buyer might be asking for that in, on every deal. Um, in 2008, 9, and 10, there was limited financing, limited buyer pools, so and it was a lot of motivation for first-time home buyers. And so th- it was almost always on those deals we were going to have to pay two to three percent in closing costs. And so you want to make sure you know who you're selling to or what product you're selling. Like if you're a new construction builder, 
and the rates are high, you might be buying down the rates. So these are all, you know, if you're paying three points on a $300,000 flip that you're selling later, that's $9,000, which can be anywhere, you know, a lot of times 25 to 50% of a profit on the smaller deal. And so watch out for those closing costs. So like how we kind of protect ourselves on that, when we're running our analysis and our underwriting, we're calling every broker and and then we're reading through the MLS to see if there was concession costs uh, given when they sold it. Because if the comparables are all saying they had to support those closing costs, we have to factor in our performa. Do you have a good rule of thumb, James, for like how much people should set aside when they're underwriting a deal right now for seller concessions? Um, What I've been doing, because roughly is... You know, we have 6% in broker fees, and then we usually have about 2.5% in closing costs to 3%. And then we, so I, I added an additional 1% minimum to each deal. So typically when I'm selling a property, I knock 10% right off the top. If I'm selling it for a million bucks, I'm going off a net of 900 because that's going to be all my closing costs right off the uh, right off the bat, plus a little bit of wiggle room. So that's how I underwrite things really quickly in my brain. All right. Well, there are some good tips for underwriting right now in the fix and flip space. Henry, let's move on to you and talk about buy and hold. So what do you what do you see as the big sort of buckets of expenses that need to be accounted for? And what are some of the major areas that you find investors underestimating or miscalculating when they do their underwriting? Yeah, man. So buy and hold. I think most people understand the, the high level buckets, right? So we're talking about maintenance everybody knows stuff breaks right so you need to be budgeting for maintenance out of your properties um everybody understands that there is going to be property management of some sort so there's a budget for that there's uh capital expenses there's vacancies and then everybody else knows there's your debt service and your principal your interest and your insurance right so those are the main buckets that people are typically aware of but what I found is that people like to skimp on some of these. They they just, you know, they're not, they're like, ah, it won't happen too often. I'll just leave that out of my underwriting. You know, vacancies really low here. Like stuff rents so fast. So we're not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna budget for vacancy or, you know, I'm gonna self-manage. So we're not gonna budget for property management. So I think, I think people leave a lot of that stuff out. But even within some of these, uh, expenses, there are hidden costs in the hidden expenses, right? So when you think about vacancy, everybody understands vacancy. Yeah, people will move out. And then when they move out, I have to re-rent it. And so I need to budget for that time that somebody is not living in my property. But when you really break down vacancy, there's a lot in there that people don't account for. Yes, vacancy means when somebody moves out, you need to pay the mortgage, right? But what people don't think about is your what about vacancy when tenants don't pay rent right because maybe a tenant doesn't move out but they're just not paying you rent for whatever reason right and you're going through this series of back and forth with a tenant you're still having to cover the mortgage for that time frame and they still live there right so i think vacancy is much deeper than just somebody's moving out and i'm re-renting it also what about eviction costs right you're a landlord at some point you're going to do an eviction right or two or three or four depends on how good you are at tenant selection right but no one budgets for evictions on the front side right and i think evictions are part of vacancy and expensive and expensive and it's going to vary from state to state so you should do your due diligence know what an eviction costs you 
and budget part of that into your uh, monthly expenses for your property. Um, you also have uh, utility costs during vacancies, right? So if your property is empty and you're having to renovate it, right? Well, you're not only covering the mortgage, but you're covering the utilities. And those utility expenses aren't things that people think about as part of what you pay for as a landlord. They say, oh, well, my tenants are going to pay for the utilities. Yeah, they will when they live there. But what happens when you're doing a you know 60-day renovation on a property, right? That utility expense goes back to you. So you're carrying utilities. Um, uh, and so it's not just tenants moving. It's much more than that, right? Because you, you've got tenants moving, you've got renovations. And a lot of times people who are going to do this buy and hold method or especially the Burr method, they're not considering all of these holding costs on the front side. You're buying a property that needs a renovation, right? So all of these expenses start hitting you from day one before you're ever making any money, right? And so you want to underwrite that into what you're offering for a property and be able to budget for it on the front side. So how do you do that practically, Henry? Because you know, a lot, you know, if you use the bigger pockets calculators or a spreadsheet, usually there's a blind item for vacancy and it's usually a percentage of rent is what most people do. Is that what you do? Or do you recommend adding sort of another lineup to jack up the, the vacancy number? I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think that it matters as long as you add it in there. Right. So if you just want to increase your vacancy percentage, right. So some people as a rule of thumb, just use the vacancy percentage of a market. Right. So you can, find your market and understand, hey, in Northwest Arkansas, we have, you know, 5% vacancy, so I'll budget 5%. Well, 5% typically probably isn't even one month's rent, right? And so I prefer to do it more on how long do you envision a property to be vacant when you have to turn it over and then add a little padding for these other things that we talked about. So um, in my opinion, it needs to be at least one month's rent plus these additional things, right? And so just use your best uh, judgment based on what these things cost and add a little bit to that. Or you can have separate line items if you're super detail-oriented. Um, another thing to think about is uh, a lot of people do not budget for um, property management, right? They say, well, I'm going to self-manage, right? And I know that sounds great. And I think most people should self-manage where it makes sense, Right. But you have to understand what your goals are as a real estate investor. If your goal is to buy one property a year for five years and then at the end of your journey, you're going to have five properties. OK, self-managing might be something that's reasonable for you. But if you're planning to scale this business, if you want to get to your financial freedom by generating enough cash flow from your rental properties, it's probably going to mean you're going to do more than five properties. And yes, right now. Managing your property seems like a good thing to do because you want to learn, because it saves you the money. But at some point, you are not going to want to do that if you're growing and scaling and you want to be able to still cash flow your properties when that happens. And so if you're not underwriting your deals with 10% property management in there, I think that you're hurting yourself because if you're buying something that doesn't work, if you add that 10%, well, you're buying a really slim deal and then you're going to lose your cash flow if and when you decide you don't want to do that. Also, you don't know what life brings, right? You don't know what opportunities are around the corner for you. Maybe you get a different job. Maybe you have to move. There's all these things that could unexpectedly require you to hire property management and you haven't prepared to do that. And I think that's a big one that people miss that's easily added to your underwriting. I think that's such a good point. I mean, 
this is an oversimplification, but in a lot of ways, the only way to really lose money in rental property investing is forced selling. Like if you're, if you have to sell at a bad time, you know, the housing market generally goes up. So if you can hold on through bad times, you're going to do well. And I think property management is one of those sort of, uh, traps where you can get sucked into forced selling like you said if your life changes if something happens and it doesn't pencil out with you not managing you could have you could sell what might be a great deal because you just like long term because it just doesn't work with your lifestyle anymore or you can't find a property manager to do it effectively so i think that's a really good like risk management strategy is to make sure even if you're self-managing intend to do it forever um to continue to 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 underwrite with those very good tip. Any other ones you think? Yeah. One final one to think about that I think a lot of investors don't think about it because they don't really consider it at, at an expense, um, but it kind of turns into one, right? So a lot of landlords don't, they're not diligent about rent raises, right? I buy properties all the time from landlords and their market rents are so low. Right. And you're essentially leaving money on the table by not keeping up with market rents. I'm not saying you need to be at the market number every single time, but if you're not increasing your rents with what the rent rates are in your area, essentially you're charging yourself an expense every month because you're leaving money on the table from the rents that you could be getting, especially if you rented it to another tenant. Now, I'm not saying be irresponsible and raise rents on people. Um, without considering, you know, who your tenants are, what situations are out there, but you need to have some sort of systematic process in place to ensure that you're keeping your rents up with the market and with inflation, because if you're not doing that, then you're paying an inflation expense and you're paying a rent expense by not charging those things. Opportunity costs are costs. I mean, if you are, if you are losing out on an opportunity that costs you something that is and an inefficiency in your business that you need to cap take advantage of. So yeah, I mean, that's one that's like hard to underwrite for though, right? You're just like you can't be like, oh, I'm gonna be bad at running my business. So I need to like add this, <laughs> this light out of it. My <laughs> lack of business acumen. <laughs> I guess if you're just really self-aware, you could do that, but I I'm not that self-aware. You learn those ones the hard way. And that's why we hire property management, right? Like if <laughs> If if you if you know you don't have the 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 heart to raise rent on people, hire factor for the property management expense. Let them do it. So just just put one of those in there, either rent raises or property management cost. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. All right. Well, uh, any other last thoughts? I, I think we we've covered now uh, buy and hold and fix and flip. Kathy, I have you going last because I know you have to go to the airport. So if our listeners just hear Kathy run out the door, it's because she has to make a flight. But <laughs> she's here with us for now. So let's ask her about syndications and what the big costs. I think I assume we're, we're going to do this as, as a LP, as, a, as someone who invests a limited partner in a syndication. What are some of the, you know, as a passive investor, some of the costs that we should be thinking about? Yeah, just to explain to some people who maybe don't know what a syndication is, uh, somebody, an investor finds a deal and needs more money, doesn't want to go to the bank, so they bring in passive investors, other investors who don't want to do the work, just want to invest. Um, so the, the person who found the deal is generally called the sponsor. 
and they're the GP, the general partner, and then the investor is the LP, the, the limited partner. So I, I can really speak to both sides because I've been on both sides and there's hidden fees on both sides because it's a partnership and it's flexible, meaning if the if the deal goes really well, then everybody generally makes money. If it doesn't, that's where uh, things you know, that's when people get upset, right? Because there's not enough money to trickle down to everybody. So as an investor, it's really important first and foremost to look at the fees because they may, the sponsor may say, Hey, you're going to, we're going to split this 50, 50. Now that's you know, the investor generally gets like 80% of the profit, but, um, it's 70, 80%, depending on the deal. And the sponsor gets 20 or 30%, but I've seen people flip it. I mean, there's all kinds of ways these are structured. But let's say it's 80% of the profit and you're like, whoa, this is great. I'm going to get 80% of the profit and do no none of the work. Well, what if within the documents, there's all kinds of fees that you didn't account for and those fees eat up all the profit during the process of the deal um, such that there's no profit left and you get nothing. So this is really important to understand. On the flip side, if you're the sponsor, if you're the syndicator and you don't charge any fees, which I've done <laughs> when I first started syndicating 12 years ago, I didn't want to charge fees to the investors. I just wanted it to be fair and even and I'll just do the work and we'll just split it all at the end. Uh, but I also gave an enormously high preferred return. Um, so that's kind of the next thing is is the preferred return is the, is who gets paid first, who gets preference. And it'll outline that in the documents. Uh, some some documents don't have any preferred return. Everybody just gets their money pro rata. Uh, uh, it's better for the investor to have preference, right? To get paid first before anybody else. That's a preferred return. Uh, so if the if the pref in the beginning I was giving my investors a fifteen percent preferred return Whoa. per year, I they were I want to go back in time and invest in man. <laughs> so no fees, fifteen percent profit sounds great. It was crazy, but we were this was two thousand ten. I mean, we were we were getting stuff for ten cents on the dollar. There was so much in it that um, everybody made money, except. If if things go longer, so if, if you project you're going to get through this deal in two years, but it goes three or four due to things that are really maybe out of your control completely, well, the investors are still getting that pref. They're getting paid first. They're getting that 15% before I get anything. So in some of those deals, I didn't charge any fees. I gave an enormous preferred return. And by the end, I didn't get anything. So I did all the work didn't get the profit, but the investors did great. So in a syndication, it needs to be equal, right? Everybody needs to make money. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think that this concept of like, um, like the capital stack, basically the order of which people are getting paid is really important. And that's not just for syndications too. Sometimes this happens in partnerships on smaller deals as well. Yeah. Um, you know, if someone, you really need to sort of model out in your underwriting the order of which people get paid. Yes. Um, because, you know, if there's a lot of money, it might look like a huge pot of money. But if someone gets, you know, a guaranteed 10% return before you get a dollar, you know, maybe that that big pot of money doesn't go so far. And it's really worthwhile to sort of even draw this out and just like visually understand like who's getting paid what uh, before you get into any sort of partnership, including a syndication. 
And syndications are regulated by the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC. So you are supposed to have all of that explained in the operating agreement. It's usually in an LLC and a private placement memorandum where all of that is spelled out. But most people don't read them. They're boring. They're legal. But if you're investing in a syndication, just spend the money to have an attorney review it for you or, or you know, just make sure you really understand it. And Dave, what you said about understanding that waterfall is the most important thing. Who's getting the profit when that profit hits and who's getting fees? Now, I've learned since that a syndicator should be charging fees because you're doing the work and there might not be profit. It's an investment. There's no guarantee. Uh, there could be another pandemic, right? So in the case of, and I've talked about it before, but our Park City deal, uh, we got shut down for two years because of COVID, but we're still paying that 15% preferred return when we're not making any money and can't do any work and you can't change the the documents, right? This is just, it didn't say, oh, if there's a pandemic, we're not paying this. So you've, you've really got to understand the 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 fees being charged and if that's going to take all the profit and as a syndicator or the investor in it is it equal is it fair so typically you would see a one to two percent just sort of asset management fee you know we're just kind of watching this if it's if it's development it's going to be a higher fee because there's more to it there's more work so the fees might be higher uh, there's there's generally going to be a fee for the person who does the financing because they're doing all that it takes to get the financing and sometimes they're they're taking a recourse loan so it's okay you know expect that um, but not an absorbent fee so again maybe one to two percent there might be an acquisition fee now um, this is this is where the the people get paid to just find the property and go through the process of acquiring it. There's still broker fees on top of that. And there might be a disposition fee, the time it takes to sell the property, even though a broker is really doing that. So these are all fees. Some syndications will have them, some won't. Um, you know, it just, it's it's got to be good for everybody. And that there, ha there has to be enough cushion that those fees can get paid and there's still profit in the end. So with every syndication, make sure they have a very detailed pro forma showing you where all the money's going. Because if it's vague, and this is what I've learned over the years, if anything's vague, then the syndicator, the sponsor can say, well, you know, the documents allow this because it didn't not allow it, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So everything needs to be spelled out. Uh, and then another big, uh, I noticed this was with a single family fund that wanted us to, you know, wanted to partner with us. And they were kind of Wall Street guys and as we looked at their pro forma and their documents, they were charging $500,000 per person in salaries, Whoa. in salaries. And this is a fee that came on top of anybody, any of the investors getting their money. <laughs> we're like, you gotta, I mean, maybe you guys do that on Wall Street, but we don't do that on Main Street. That's not how it works. So really look for that. Like where are, who's getting paid? And and what happens if they said this project's going to be done in two years, but it goes for five years? Do they still get that salary? You know, um, so again, there's a lot to look at. A lot of people just don't pay attention and they just believe the marketing materials and don't read actually the fine print. So, you know, if you don't want to read it, have somebody else who understands it, read it for you. Read your contracts. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean. That's basically maybe that's the theme of this episode. It's just hidden fees. It's like read your contracts and you'll you'll eliminate probably half the half the fees that you uh, encounter as an investor or just a human in life. And then there's another thing that people really don't understand with syndications. We've noticed this all the 
over the years is they don't know uh, their stat. I don't know how to say this. They don't know their status, their position as the investor. So they don't know where they fall in that waterfall. They don't know if they're an equity investor. So they don't even know what that means. They don't know if they're if there's somebody ahead of them that has priority to them, or they, they think maybe they're a lender, they're investing and they got a 6% preferred return and they think that's a loan. They think that that's guaranteed. Mm. It's not. It only comes out of profit, um, the preferred return generally, unless you're coming in as a lender. If you're a lender, you know, we talked about it earlier, the loan gets paid first, always. The lender is in the best position, almost always. And there's usually a first and a second. Obviously, the first lender has the first priority. And if there's no profit, you still got to pay it, right? You know, you still like that the sponsor, the investor takes the loss. The, the lender doesn't, you know. So if you're investing as a lender, it's it's definitely the highest priority. If you're investing as an equity investor, you're at the bottom. You know, you get paid after everybody else gets paid. And that if, if there's huge profit, you you can make a tremendous amount of money. If there's no profit, you get nothing. If there's losses, you lose your money. It's very good advice. Well, thank you all, all for all this. It's been super helpful. There are actually, if you want to learn any more about sort of the nuts and bolts operating um, of these different types of businesses, there are actually great Bigger Pockets books for any of these. Um, you know, Jay Scott did a, a really good uh, house. He has two flipping books, uh, one on estimating rehab costs, one on just being a flipper. Uh, Brandon wrote a great book about managing rental properties, and Brian Burke has a great book on investing in syndication. So if you want to learn a little bit more about underwriting deals um, in a written format, you can check those out on biggerpockets.com store. With that, we have one question from the Bigger Pockets forums that I want to ask you guys. It is about the general economy, and then we'll let Kathy make her flight. Emily Hazard went on the Bigger Pockets web uh, forums and said there Morgan Stanley sees something called the 444 happening in 2023. Have any of you heard of this? No, I have not. Me neither. I hadn't either. So it's called Morgan Stanley sees an environment in the future with 4% federal funds rate, which is a little bit below where it is now. 4% inflation, which is definitely below where it is now. And 4% unemployment, which is a bit higher. Do you think this is accurate? What are your thoughts? All right. Anyone want to take a first swing at this? So just as a recap, it's Morgan Stanley forecasting that we might see a year in 2023 where the federal funds rate is 4%, inflation is 4%, and unemployment is 4%. That would be inflation and Fed's coming, the Fed fund rate coming down a little bit, inflation coming down a pretty good amount, and for unemployment going up just a little bit. So what do you guys think? It sounds balanced and nice. I think it's hopeful. Yeah. I personally don't see that happening. Um, I actually think they're I think the federal fund rate will be around four percent. I think I don't I, I hopefully inflation gets to four percent maybe by the end of the year. Might probably a long shot. But the the one thing is this unemployment numbers are just not moving. Yeah, it's wild. The labor market's getting no ease on that, and uh, th that's where I'm like, oh, so at some point, something's going to happen there, but it's it, it, right now it does not seem to be breaking. Yeah, I mean, I, I that's that's wishful thinking, and, and it would be wonderful. I guess the question is when. I mean, are they thinking it would be this year? Because the Fed has made it really clear they're, they're going to keep raising rates and, uh, and shooting for 5% Fed fund rate, and um, the other, they're really shooting to... 
kill jobs and they haven't done a great job at that yet, which I guess, depending on if you would like a job or not, it's it's good news for the person with the job that, um, you know, they haven't killed the jobs the, the way that they wanted to. Uh, so I highly doubt that. I think the Fed fund rate's going to be higher and inflation probably higher too at this point, unless there's a little tweaking with the data, you know, which is possible. Really? I think I think inflation is going down. I think we're already at 6.1%. If we stayed at the run, like if we stay at the run rate we're at for the last six months, we will be at like two and a half percent by June. So as long as inflation doesn't go up, we will be well under 4% um, just from a mathematical perspective. It could go back up. I have no idea. But the, just based on the trajectory right now, I think it's going down. But I, I totally agree on the Fed funds rate. I think they've basically said there's no way they're raising cutting rates in 2023, and it's already above 4%. So that seems like a long shot. Unemployment is just the big question, right? It's like, it's weird. You would think that it would be higher. Um, but it does seem like there's kind of this uh, bifurcation of the uh, labor market. And like all there's this big, like all this public discussion about you know layoffs but those are just happening in the tech sector like if you look at like more traditionally blue collar jobs like the labor market is incredibly strong there and i i read something today in the wall street journal that said that 70 percent of the job or 78 78 percent of job openings right now are at quote unquote small businesses so it's like it's still like we hear about like amazon and microsoft laying off businesses but that's not or laying off people, but that's not what's driving the labor market. It's all these small small businesses. And so um, it'll be interesting. I think that's, that's personally, I think that's sort of the X factor for the, for the economy this year is what happens with unemployment. And we are seeing for like our job, because this we're always, this, we're like the small business in Seattle, you know, all the tech guys just steal everybody. <laughs> and it, it's, it was the last 24 months were really frustrating. Like you'd be like, I need an accountant. I can't get an, this is crazy. You can't pay 750 grand for an accountant, James. Oh yeah, it's like are the like it'd be like an entry level marketing person. They'd be like, I'm gonna get paid a hundred thousand at Amazon. I'm like, well, I can't do that. Like, it's just that doesn't work. Um, but it, we we it is easing up a little bit. There is some like construction companies are starting to lay off some people. Like there is some of that blue collars lightening up. But um, at least you can get applications now. Typically, the layoffs that I'm seeing are in industries that had to staff up during the pandemic or staff up during what happened as a result of the pandemic, right? So the mortgage industry is doing some layoffs, right? But obviously that's infect that's affected by the rates being what they are and, and mortgage applications not being what they were. And then in tech, um, and then a lot of uh, different customer service industries where we they had to staff up to handle the, the the load of calls coming in from people who were just sitting at home. Totally, yeah. So it'll be interesting, but I hope they're right. That sounds like a great place to wind up. If we wound up with 4% unemployment, that would not represent significant break in the labor market. It would be mean inflation still too high, but back, you know, in the stratosphere at least. And then federal funds rate a little bit low below where they were. I mean, that would be wonderful. So let's all hope um, that we're right. But it does seem like there, there are some, uh, headwinds that might prevent this this forecast from coming true all right well henry james kathy thank you so much for being here for everyone listening if you appreciate the show appreciate the insights from the three panelists please give us a five-star review we really do appreciate it it really does help us um you can do that on apple or spotify so please go do that give us a five-star review we'd really appreciate it thank you all for listening we'll see you next time for on the market 
On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. And a big thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all this, what I'm describing here, is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.